Hi, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and in this podcast, we talk about times when the Scriptures have become real to us, based on the idea that uh, the more real the Scriptures are, the more powerful they become to us, the, the more they apply to our lives, and the more they can be an anchor to us through all of our difficult times. I'm really excited to have uh, our guest today that's uh, someone I've known for quite a while and really respect his work, uh, Jay Moody, who I think has recently retired uh, from uh, being a professor at BYU. So welcome, Jay. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, it's great to be here with you. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'll just let you introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you. Uh, well, I was born uh, in Payson when my folks were attending BYU. Uh, I love Payson. And that's where they met. Uh, you love Payson? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I still have a brother who lives there. I do too. And uh, uh, oh, cool. I wonder if they know each other. I'll have to ask. Yeah. Uh, so I was raised in the farming community of Delta. And uh, you're right out there next to the desert. My father was a high school teacher, plus um, he ran a farm, a lot of, of acreage in, uh, in alfalfa and alfalfa seed. And a lot of it was white, right out on the, the edge of the desert. You've got Delta there, and then you go west. You, you come to Hinkley, uh. five miles away, and then you keep going west, and you're through farmland, and then the farmland ends, and then it's nothing but desert all the way to Nevada, uh, about another 100 miles. So there's nothing there. Our farm was the last one. Mm. So after you passed our farm, there was nothing but desert. So we'd be out there. Uh, I'd be out there with my father irrigating or doing work and into the night. And the stars would come out on a moonless night. It was just absolutely breathtaking. Yeah. And that planted the seeds within me that I decided that if it were all possible, I would, rather than being a farmer, which I have nothing against being a farmer, but uh, my heart just soared and went up to the, the sky above me. And so I just de determined that I try to become an astronomer. And in fact, I did. Went to, got a degree at uh, BYU in physics, then went to the University of Michigan and got my PhD there. Did uh, postdoctoral work at an institute for astrophysics in New Mexico. Then uh, uh, taught for a while at Weber State and then ended up at BYU where I uh, was for about for over 30 years. Wonderful. You know, that, that resonates with me. I've taught um, about Abraham and the astronomy that he and the Egyptians would have seen mm -hmm. for a long time. And I've often said, most people just don't understand what they saw. And if you want to understand it, you have to go to the high desert. If you go to the high desert, then yes. you get the kind of view they got. And it sounds like that's what you grew up with. That's exactly it. And with that perspective, it does uh, imbue a sense of awe within it you does. of God's creations. It's kind of hard not to. In fact, as I have uh, done my own informal polling, if you will, or discussions with uh, the professional astronomers I've associated with, it seems to me that uh, most of them have thought about God mm. and thought about religion, and, and they'll take one of two paths. Either they will embrace God or they'll fight against it and... Mm be a, a vocal atheist, but nobody seems to be in the in-between yeah. ground much. I think you do have to think about it. That uh, I think you're right. And I think at least my experience has been, <clears throat> excuse me, my experience has been um, that when you're, when you're in like a, a high desert or someplace like that, it's not, you know, in most cities, 
you can go outside and you may never look up and you may never notice the stars, but in a place like that, mm -hmm. they impose themselves upon your life. You cannot help but notice them every time. Um, and uh, I, I think that's, it's, it's great to, to realize that that is probably more what our, our ancient Israelite ancestors experienced uh, than, than what we currently experience in cities with all of the light pollution. Absolutely. So you can understand why there's stories in a mythology that grow up with the stars. Yeah. Because if you're not really particularly educated and don't read or write or have libraries or things like that, uh, this is a natural canvas that you can use to pass on your values and your value system. Yeah. You know, I, and you talk about uh, being in a high desert and having that, I like to, the word you use is imposes itself on you. And it's true. Uh, years ago, I taught uh, the class and there was uh, a young man from uh, inner city Philadelphia mm. that was in my class. And we got talking about the stars and uh, he had no concept of a nighttime sky yeah. uh, or, or of seeing the moon or anything like that. He, he was, in a constant state of wonder in that class, he was so fun to talk to <laughs> as he discovered the sky for the first time in his life. Uh, that's fantastic. Well, that, that probably just leads us to, um, I guess, where we want to go, which is what are what are some times when either through uh, your experiences in life, your experiences in your career or whatever else, uh, just times when the scriptures have become real to you, something just suddenly pinged, I guess, as it were, and, and you were like, oh, that that makes this scripture become real to me. Uh, there are several, uh, but the one that I definitely have to lead with is in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, mm. verse 6, actually. And uh, I'll have it before me if, if you'd like, Please. if it's okay, let me pace through that story. Yeah. So uh, as a young man, uh, um, I was not a perfect person. I was not a rebel or by anything like that. And, and actually did my best in a lot of ways to, uh, live a good life. But, uh, I made some serious mistakes. And one of those, which, uh, shrug my shoulders on right now is at, at a young age, maybe about 14 or something like that. I got exposed to pornography mm. and it was not a good thing. I kind of got, went down that rabbit hole for about six months. And, uh, with my friends, as we try to access that material, I'd go down to the local drugstore and I got pretty good at stealing the magazines. Okay. <laughs> so it's, it's a little easier. These so I did days. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little easier. Uh, sadly, now. sadly. So, well, and it's, it's, I've been a Bishop. Uh, I'm, I'm a Bishop right now for the second time. And, and this has become uh, a topic I'm very familiar with. And I've talked with a lot of young men over this kind of, yeah. kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, I, I, after about six months, I came to my senses and uh, uh, destroyed the, the magazines that I had and just said, you know, this this is not good. I feel awful. Yeah. I feel horrible. I, my uh, opinion of myself is going down. My uh, confidence in myself is going down. I could just see all kinds of ways that this was not helping me. And so I somehow summoned the ability uh, to to walk away from it. Well, that's, that's impressive. Although remaining susceptible still. It, and I thought, okay, this is over. This is this is done. I don't want anything more to, to do with this. I, but I but I kept it private, kept it to myself. I I was ashamed. I didn't want anybody to know. Yeah. And, uh, but you know what? I never felt good. I I never that peace that uh, I had before the whole episode never returned to me. And so I tried this. And this is funny in retrospect. 
mortified that anybody would know that the uh, that, that I had done this. You know, uh, you know, my uncle's the stake president. My uh, my grandpa's the mayor. Right. My <laughs> my dad's a prominent uh, school teacher and everything like that. I just uh. yeah. So, but I felt I felt terrible that I had stolen. So I figured, well, I'm going to pay it back, but I don't want anybody to know. So how do you do that? So yeah. I I took the money and I. And I, I went down to the store and I put it when, when nobody was looking, I put it on the cash register. Mm. And so the, uh, the lady attending, when she wasn't looking, she comes back, she sees the money. She says, Hey, who put this here? What are you yeah. doing there? And uh, nobody said anything. I didn't say anything. And so she shrugged her shoulders, open it up, put it, put the money in the cash register. And I thought, okay, great. I paid, I paid it back, right. but I paid, I paid it back in a way that in retrospect, again, I'm clinging to, to, to the way I want it to be. And you know what, that, that didn't work either. Mm. So, uh, okay. I, I, I mean, it didn't work in the sense that I still didn't have, uh, any relief from the, this, this burden of guilt that I felt. Right. Okay. So years roll past. This is five years. I just kind of put it on my mind. I don't think that much about it, honestly, but still that piece has been absent. And then I, uh, I get a mission call and it's, uh, I'm getting ready for, for that, and uh, oh, I leave in March, um, so I I go one semester of school, and then I come back. I don't have any friends around. I'm doing farm chores, and I uh, I'm called to Japan. And I figure if I'm going to go to Japan and be successful, I better understand Jesus Christ because they're not a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. So I pull out the New Testament and I start reading the uh, the Gospels and. Uh, it's an interesting experience for me because despite my best efforts, thinking hard about the idea of Jesus Christ and a savior isn't coming naturally to me. And even though I've been taught that my whole life, I find myself questioning what are people going to think when I tell them there's this man who's a savior, Mm. you know, what's, what's going to be their response and how are they going to open up their hearts to this? A son of God. I mean, that's a pretty wild claim. And so I'm seeing it. I'm seeing Jesus Christ more through the questioning eyes of a Pharisee than a, than the believing eyes of a disciple. Mm. And that's kind of a little bit uh, interesting experience for me, too. So anyway, I'm, I'm going along, and then I read uh, Matthew chapter 9, and that story, this is the story of the man who is sick of the palsy, lying on a bed, never walked in his, probably maybe in his life, I don't know. And uh, uh, the Savior has uh, come into the city. It's got it in front of me. I'm not sure which city it is, but he comes it's into... Capernaum. It says his... Capernaum? Mm-hmm. Okay, he comes into Capernaum. And he's in a house or some enclosure, mm-hmm. and they can't get to him because there's so many people surrounding him. And so they they bring the man sick of the palsy, and they lower him down to the roof. Uh, okay, but in my mind's eye at that time, kind of touched by the the spirit, I hope and trust... I, um, I could see the scene unfolding, and and I saw it differently than I had envisioned as a child. Uh, people are excited. This is not a time when you have um, you have newspapers, no newspapers, no t- TV, no internet, nothing like that. Everything goes uh, word of mouth. Uh, this is the day and age where if you want entertainment, you're going to have a circus or something like that. I don't know if they had circuses back mm. then, but you can have things like that. And the Savior has to be the most entertaining thing that has hit Capernaum 
since the circus left town, you know, because here's somebody who can heal people and, and do all kinds of miracles. And so people are crushing around him for that, for other things too, no doubt for the spiritual side, but, but for this side too. And so I'll read the scripture. It says, uh, verse two, and behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And and I, I could see the irony in the statement. They don't want to, to hear, have somebody say, hey, your sins are forgiven. They want to see a miracle. And But he says, your sins are forgiven you. And, and then it says, uh, behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemeth, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? And then he, then he lays out this zinger of an observation. Uh, verse 5, For whether it is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk. And, and it just hit me. The logic behind that for the first time in my life hit me. He's, he's tossing out uh, an obvious thing to them. Any idiot can stand there and say, your sins are forgiven you, because there's no outward change. Mm. Nothing's different. Right. That's easy, easy stuff. So what's easier to do? Say, hey, your sins are forgiven you. Or you who have not walked for decades, stand up and walk. Yeah. And then he says, okay, but that, and this is verse six, but that you may know that the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed and go to, into thy, go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. Mm. And, and so for me, there it hit me full force, right. saying, this is the answer you've been searching for for five years. Because I, of my own accord, tried to assuage my conscience. I did it through my own way. I tried to pay it back in, a, in my own way. Right. I, I, I left the sin behind. I was no longer in its throes. Um, but I had no peace. And, and so, because I had never done it the right way, I had never gone to the savior uh, and said, would you forgive me of my sin? Right. And so, and so I did, and I got on my knees and, and it's interesting because a, a strong impression came over me. Y- yes, I can't forgive you, but you've got to go talk directly to the owner of the store and you've got to go talk to your bishop and you've got to lay it all out. And you have to you have to quit running from facing with other people what you did, mm. and and so I I thought about that in that in the basement uh, bedroom that I had for about an hour because the store owner owner and my grandmother were best buds, mm. and I figured you know but I had to accept the fact that anybody could know what what I did right. and, and and that's okay. And we can understand too, but the idea that this by this you may know that somebody's repented their sins, they'll they'll confess and forsake. And the confession confession part is something that I too much pride, too much fear, too much something to do. Yeah. So so I I got up and I walked just as slowly as I could the four blocks to this the owner of the store's home, <laughs> and, and uh, knocked on her door hoping she wasn't going to be there, but she was. And uh, she invited me in, and I just looked at her uh, 
good, a good, wonderful lady, Sister Baker. Said to me, Sister Baker, look, here's what I did. I did it five years ago. Here's how I paid you back. It was silly. Here I am. I'm here to ask for your forgiveness. I'm so sorry for what I did. And this saint of a woman um, got up and went around the coffee table. She was on their side for me. She went around the coffee table and she embraced me and gave me this bear hug and said, don't let this bother you anymore. This must have really been a burden for you for so long. Just forget about uh, it. Wonderful. Isn't that great? Yeah. I didn't know what she'd do. I thought she might be just ticked off as heck, yeah. but she wasn't. And, and then I spoke with my bishop. Uh, I got that cleared up. And you know what, Carrie? It was not immediate. The relief was not immediate. I thought, okay, finally. Well, once you've once you've uh, dulled yourself to feeling, you know, that kind of relief for a while, I guess for me, in my case, the relief didn't come immediately, but it came. It took about a, about a month later, uh. I realized, oh my gosh, I am no longer carrying th this burden. And, and to me, one of the greater miracles was for the first time in my life, I could talk about mm. it because I could never talk anymore. And I look at me, you know, freely telling it this story and, you know, anybody can know. In fact, in fact, yeah, yeah kind of when I teach the youth, I want them to know. Right. I want them to know that their bishop was a bonehead at one point, because if you're a bonehead too, then maybe we're all boneheads. Right, you know? right. <laughs> it's just, or just you make mistakes. It's just part of life learning and growing up, but, but come to the savior. And, and it was, for me, it was that scripture, just, just, just finally laying it out saying Jesus Christ came to forgive sins. So avail yourself of him and, and, and try to find some peace through that method. Uh, that's wonderful. And it works. Yeah. And I think that's so powerful, <laughs> right? This idea uh, of this, well, there's so many things that are powerful in that story, but that the scripture moved you to action um, yeah. because you were picturing it and, and suddenly you, you understood it. As you took the time to think about it and what yeah. it was really happening, suddenly it applied to you and it affected you and you acted on that. And, and I, I understand what you're saying about that. It took some time, right? But the, the idea is that sometimes that forgiveness comes uh, incrementally or the peace comes incrementally. And every now and then we have to take a, a second to look back and say, Oh, I feel differently than I used to. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, cause I kind of expected it to be more sudden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it is, but more often, and sometimes well, it is. I don't know if I can say more often, but quite often it's not right. But but yeah, it wasn't for me on this thing. The, the the beauty of this maybe is going back to that scripture and the irony that's in there and and exactly you, you talked about it, this idea that on the on the outside to the outer world, it's easy to say your mm -hmm. sins are forgiven you. And it's hard to say your legs are healed. But in reality, right. it was harder to say your sins are forgiven you, right? The price that was paid to do that was a huge price. But that that what's going on the on the inside is is not as visible, right? So, and I think that's part of what was happening with you as well is that there were some outer things that had happened, but you needed to have that inner thing as well. That well, that was more difficult and was a greater price for you to pay. It was more difficult to go and talk to people than it was to cough up some money, right? Um, oh, interesting. Yes, much more, much more difficult. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and I've thought about that many times because because I still get susceptible to that. You want to put your best foot forward. You don't want to 
anybody to know that you're anything but perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're all that. We're all that way. And and to some degree, I mean, we live in a day where you have to be careful what gets out there and what doesn't, right? And and uh, oh, I mean, yeah. it's one thing to say you did something when you were uh, 14, but another thing to say, well, I did it when I was 30 or whatever. But still, we, we are in a day where that yeah. that can be difficult. But but in reality, that's that's what we need to do, right? We need to go through that internal struggle that you went through and and yes. be willing to, to confess and and so on just as and and that's the more difficult part than than the outward stuff in some ways just as in reality it's more difficult to say thy sins are forgiven you but that not to what the world can see to what the world can see it's yeah. it's more difficult to heal someone and and so the savior does it that way it's a very interesting point you've made Kerry, in that to to you're exactly right anybody can say your sins are forgiven you but to have power behind it and authority behind it took the atonement yeah. took gethsemane yeah so it but no one could it, it know took that the hardest thing ever rendered on earth that's right yeah what's that but yeah but no one could could see that or know that at the time so yeah that's that's a great story that's right wonderful well well thank well, you it, it, I, it really taught me something it taught me that no matter what i did no matter if i had to do it my way i couldn't do it mm. if i did it the savior's way I could do it. And so I was able really to go and, and have a, a very successful mission because I got that fundamental point down, right. that that's what I was taking to people. Uh, I was taking the ability for them to find peace, having uh, their sins forgiven and having guidance uh, as to how they might live from there. Yeah. And there's something... So I got my answer. You know, I, th- what I was striving to do, which was become a better missionary and uh-huh. uh, got a much more profound answer than I had expected. That's, that's wonderful. And I think there's something really profound in what you said as well, that you had to do it the Savior's way, not your way, right? I, I always yeah. think of this, uh, uh, and I'll paraphrase it badly, but uh, Elder Maxwell saying something like the, uh, you know, complete surrender to the Savior is the only surrender that's also total victory. Um, and that really the, the victory that we need to win is only possible by completely surrendering, right? To say, okay, I, forget about me, forget about my way. Have our will swallowed up in the wills of the Father. Just, I'm just going to have to not worry about that anymore, and just do it God's way. And when that happens, suddenly, you're 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 achieving the victory. And and what's more, as you do that, then you start to want the same things God wants. Then you actually are doing things the way you want. It's just that you've aligned, you've reconciled your will with God's. Right. So, uh, yes, it's good stuff. Well, good. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Do you, do you have sure, uh, do you have some other stories and another time that uh, the scriptures became real to you? Maybe uh, you know, like, like you said, this uh, that was from reading the scriptures. Maybe there's some from uh, doing physics and astronomy or any of them. I, we're open to any ideas. Well, I I've spent some time on in Abraham chapter three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's as a professional astronomer, and uh, now you know this. I, I mean, we we've talked obviously yeah. a little bit a little, little bit about that. Uh, audience would not know this so i better be careful but uh uh, abraham three has been fascinating being uh, a uh, a passage of scripture that is unusual in that it talks about space uh the heavens and and so on that's not a common thing to find in scriptures Uh, although not entirely uncommon you find references to stars in the old testament and constellations uh, in the old testament so yeah but not in the, the way abraham three abraham three really gets into some pretty detailed descriptions but 
Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, so I recently uh, authored a, a paper on uh, one aspect of Abraham 3 that, that, that if you were not raised like I was, knowing the, the nighttime sky or, and becoming a professional astronomer and having spent nearly a year of my life up at night looking at the sky, mm. taking, taking data, uh, if you hadn't had that experience, I don't know that it would maybe strike you as much as it did me, but some of the, the aspects of Abraham 3. Uh, going back to, to Abraham, so he lives, what, about 2,000 years yeah. uh, before Christ? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, that's a good round thing. And, right uh, around then. Yeah, right around then. And, and this, is, uh, this is, that's way, way, way old. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, Somebody like yourself, who's spent your life studying these kind of things, are probably a lot more comfortable with it than somebody like me. <laughs> but it had to, it had to hit me. You know, I just think about it. Uh, Abraham was as much removed from Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ is removed from us. Yeah. So that's a long, long ways in the past. Yeah. Uh, so here's Abraham, a remarkable man, uh, somebody who clearly. Uh, was well educated for his day. Very hard, very what driving person. He he wanted the priesthood. Right. He wanted to have those blessings. Yet, uh, his situation was, yeah, the the covenant. Uh, that that's right. So a, a pivotal person, and uh, he wants to understand everything. It sounds like to me, he wants to understand the the universe around him. He wants to understand the purpose that he's alive. He wants to understand God. He wants to understand priesthood. He wants to uh, have a, a faithful posterity. He wants to mean something. He has all, all kinds of things embedded in the ambitions of this man. He's he's a he's a warrior, yeah. right? If I'm remembering right, doesn't he? He does uh, go to battle. Troops in battle. Yeah. Uh, so pretty pretty much all the bases are, are touched with this person, uh, and he's. Again, he's he's intrigued by the heavens. Uh, in Abraham three, and it's spread through verses you know, five through sixteen, but it it talks somewhat about times. These were always interesting to me. I couldn't find anything from Hugh Nibley or the other scholars that really addressed this idea of set times and times of reckoning. Mm. Um, yeah, it's kind, touched upon kind of, them. Uh, Nibley had a little bit. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it, it's it's unique enough. It's not talked about very much. It's not talked about much. I was certain that uh, Nibley had probably talked about it, and I I came across it a little bit in his writings, but but actually very little. So I at, at the time had a good friend, Michael Rhodes. You mm-hmm. know, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we were in New Mexico together. And asked him, you know, guide me on this. Uh, what's been uh, written on this? And there had been some. And of course, on top on the whole topic, you've written some good things, and uh, and others have written some good things. So I went and read all that uh, all that material, but um, but still the, the the uniqueness of the idea of the uh, set times and times of reckoning was was still kind of a mysterious thing, and not one that seemed to be clicking with uh, too much of what I read. Uh, but it, it hit me, I don't even know when, a decade or so ago, that there was a very simple 
straightforward way to understand what was going on here. Mm. Actually, let me back up just for the sake of the story. There was a oh a rabble rouser in our stake who was was uh, very critical of the uh, pearl of great price and was causing a lot of trouble and headaches. Mm. That, that, and, that seems to happen sometimes. <laughs> And the bishop came to me and said, "Yeah, I, I know that you you talk a lot about the Book of Abraham. You know, yeah. help me out." So we had this, these good discussions, and that got me back interested in the Book of Abraham. I find the Book of Abraham to be absolutely uh, amazing. Yeah. That that put it in context. Uh, I I don't know. I'm not an Egyptologist, and and would never even pretend to be an Egyptologist. Uh, <laughs> And I don't know why but anyone would know... want to, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know that, uh, that sometimes uh, people criticize the, the book of Abraham uh, and uh, see, you know, say, oh, Joseph, this, this is proof that Joseph Smith is, is not a true prophet. I thought, oh, really? In 1830, we don't know what a galaxy is. We don't know that the extent of the Milky Way, our astronomical knowledge is very limited. Um, in, in these pages are interesting observations about the heavens that I just don't see um, yeah. a frontier, a young man on the frontier even being interested in yeah. or who never at any other time in his life showed any kind of knowledge of the heavens. And yet he pens this remarkable uh, passages, these remarkable passages have, dealing with the, the heavens that touch upon how ancient people would have viewed the heavens and are pretty spot on. Yeah. Yeah. In, in this way, Abraham's going to go outside on any given night when he, well, maybe any night, I don't know, you're going to look up there and you're going to engage with the heavens to see the stars, as we've talked about already. And what you're going to notice as you look at them night after night after night, you're going to notice that the really bright ones move with respect to the background of stars, mm. that they're not going to be in the same place. Right. Uh, almost every other star is going to be fixed with respect to its neighbors. But but Jupiter, Venus, uh, Mars, right. Saturn, these are bright. Yeah. Uh, Those are the ones you can still and, pick out today, even with some light pollution, you, you can. So. That's right. You go on any given night, those are the ones you're going to see. And they're not going to move with everything else. And so what they're going to do back then in those days, they're going to start compiling records to try to understand them or try to use them to uh, foretell the future, foretell weather, foretell right. uh, yeah. life. Seasonal patterns, yeah. Seasonal patterns. Uh, the the gods control the heavens, don't they? And most, as far as I can tell, most everybody back, everybody back then had some idea about God. Yeah. I, you know, maybe they worshipped idols or not atheistic like we are today, but most everybody had yeah. had some affinity towards uh, a higher being. Yeah, and and they all and associated them with the heavens. They all associated with the heavens. So you're going to look to the heavens to get insights into God. And what he's going to do to you. And if you think he's nice, then maybe he's going to send blessings. And if you think he's not nice, he's going to send wars or curses, but whatever. Yeah. He's sending stuff to you and you want to interpret it. So you're going to have your wise men, like in the days of the Savior. They're going to be looking in the heavens trying to get information uh, as to what's going to happen on earth under the directions of the gods. 
So it does. And uh, you can today you, you can uh, find these ancient tablets and that give us times when Venus was at a certain position, like right after sunset right. or right before sunrise. Uh, and so it, we would think of it in terms of positions, at least I would, positions in the, in the sky, but they're going to think of it more as times, the time mm -hmm. when the planet was here, the time when the planet was there. It is the how they the measure time. That's exactly how they measure time. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so seasons. our timing and our calendaring comes from this. Yeah. Yeah. Se seasons and, yeah. and times of that. Well, yeah. And that's why we have uh, our months are named after things that are both gods and planets because they were all associated together. Right. And that's correct. With a month being the, the orbital time of the moon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's so it's natural when you see when you pick up uh, Abraham and start reading about it, when he talks about times, of course. He's talking about movement in the heavens, but he will express it and record it as a time. Yeah. Yeah. And and so yeah, and and there's the two times, the times times of reckoning and set times. Well, time of reckoning to me is easily interpreted as just you going outdoors, looking up at the heavens. And recording what you see. It's what you reckon hmm. from your point of view. Interesting. That's the raw data. That's that's what you're going to see. That's what you can record on the tablets. Right. And you're going to record those for your whole life, these times of reckoning. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but but what's the truth? What's what's going on? Is we, you know, is is the earth the center of the universe and everything goes around the, the earth? That was as far as we can tell, that was always the, the model that people had. Yeah, yeah, for a long time. For a long time. And, you know, the Greek model is is that you've got shell upon shell upon shell, and you have the planets of different shells yeah. and so on. But I don't think Abraham had that. Uh, back in his day, it's going to be more of you've got the dome of the sky, which is going to be it, – it, I found a myth in uh, researching this, this paper about – uh, these gods and they fight and somebody dies and yeah. they get thrown up into the heavens and there they are. And the stars that we see are objects embedded in their body. Right. Uh, and so everything is at the same distance and you're just, just like the roof of a house, but there's and the space in between us is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. In fact, for, for um, the ancient Egyptians, they often depict this as a, a woman whose body arches, like her feet are on, on one horizon, her hands are on the other horizon, and her body arches over and, and her body forms that, that dome that yes. you talk about, right? And then, and then so for them, they think of um, uh, time and the movement of the stars as, as both moving through her body, but also encircling things, right? So it's, it's encircling yes. or going through this cycle of going through her body and then around the earth and through her body and around the earth. So they've got this, this dome idea depicted there. Yes, exactly. So what I see there uh, in Abraham is a, a remarkable amount of knowledge given to Abraham for his day. If when the, the Lord comes and talks about set times, I think he's saying this is a different idea. There's, there's the times you see, Abraham, the times that you comprehend. However... Let me tell you that I have placed bodies in motion at different distances from Earth out there in the heavens. Mm -hmm. 
And the whole idea that there should be different distances is a break with the traditions of his day, as far as I can tell. Hmm. In the scriptures, it talks about above. Hey, Abraham, let me tell you this. If you see two planets out there, what will be above the other? Right. You know, and the moon's above them, above you. And, uh, and there's this relationship that the, uh, more further above you are, then you move in order more slowly. Right. But that's Kepler's law of orbits <laughs> right there. <laughs> and, and so, so he's just saying, it's just in a, as a general principle, there is depth to space and there are different bodies out there. And, uh, then this whole idea of stars being separate bodies, planets being separate bodies is introduced. And and it gets confusing a little bit in Abraham 3 uh, as to what's a star and what's a planet. But yeah, I don't think they just nobody should be bothered by that. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we see these beautiful pictures from uh, uh, the pioneer probes, the Galileo probes, so on, of the surface of the planets. And we not understand very, very well that planets are not the same as stars, but I don't think Abraham cared. No. I don't think God cared to tell him. No. They're just, he's starting out just by saying they're bodies in their own right. And for their purposes, there is no difference, right? So, I mean. There is no difference. That's right. We understand that there's differences of how they're composed and so on, but for the purposes they're talking about, that's irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. Yeah. But what good would that have done him? Yeah. Yeah. So. so he's just saying these are bodies. They're bodies in their own right, yeah. like the Earth, I assume, uh, moving through space, just like uh, like the Earth moves through space, as as is remarkably given in a parenthetical statement in the uh, the Book of Mormon. Yeah. When Mormon's talking about that. Yeah, it That's, is. <laughs> that one is what passage it always got me, grabbed me. Yeah, yeah, that was a random you know parenthetical, but important statement, wasn't it? The, so it's not. The yeah, Earth that, yeah, it's just yeah. I know it's almost random in there, yeah. uh, where it says, "If God wants uh, the Earth to change in its movement, so it appears that the sun goes backwards in the sky, He could do it." Hey, Owen. By the way, that's the way it works, guys. Yeah. yeah by the way, the Earth is moving. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. it's kind of revolutionary. Um, and then I love how in in Abraham three, right? He he sets out this complicated, like say in the first eleven verses, um, this complicated uh-huh. idea that you've got these different. Uh, planets uh, or stars, whichever you want to call them, that have different movements, and there's always one above the other until you get to to Kolob, right? And then in the right. second half, which seems to be a second vision, um, right. he says, "Okay, now let's now let's teach." So I've taught you astronomy. Now let's teach you some principles. People are the same right. way, and uh, and I just like Kolob is above all of these other heavenly bodies. I'm above all intelligences or, or spirits. Um, and so there's always something right. above and below until you get to me, but I'm, I'm, I'm at the apex of both. And, uh, but in, in, embedded in there is this kind of, it's implied this idea that, um, well, it's, it's only implied if you continue reading, because after he's done with that, he talks about receiving light and truth and uh, coming down to earth in order to, you know, if you can keep, the light you've been given, you can receive more and so on. Well, he's talking about intelligence, but that's equated with light and truth. But anyway, it's, it's embedded in there is this idea that you can actually approach God. You can uh, jump orbits as it were, right? Although that's maybe more, uh-huh. uh, more of a chemistry thing to do than an <laughs> astronomy thing to do. But, um, 
but you can a, a, approach God. Uh, he may be higher than you, but you don't have to stay where you are. The planets will, but intelligences don't seem to, to need it. Well, in fact, it's very clear in the second half of, of chapter three that intelligences can actually lose or gain um, estates is what it talks about, but they can lose or gain. And, right. and, and so that seems to be this idea of, of gaining more, drawing closer to God or losing and drawing further from God. So it's a, a really fascinating model he uses to say, okay, here are how the planets work. Now let's see if we can use that as an analogy to discuss your relationship yes. with me. Spot on, spot on. That's exactly how I see those, that chapter. Oh, and it's the same way. And, I find it really interesting, and this is uh, something, a connection I didn't make until really just like a few months ago. Uh, I, I, so I've worked a lot on Abraham chapter 3, and I've worked a lot on Abraham chapter 2 and the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, and there is one verse in Abraham chapter 3, it's verse 14 if I remember right, where he, as they're uh-huh. talking about all of the uh, the stars and so on, that he, he talks about, he just makes kind of a reference to innumerable posterity in the covenant, right? So uh, yes. there's a little bit of a connection made textually, but not a ton. Um, but um, I'd, I'd been teaching for years, uh, as I taught about Abraham chapter 3, this idea that, that it really was about teaching about our relationship with God and our invitation and an invitation to draw closer to God. Um, and for years, I'd been teaching Abraham chapter 2 separately about the Abrahamic covenant. And as I came to understand the covenant better and came to understand that the central focus of the covenant was our relationship with God. And then it it so happened as I was getting ready to do an education week where uh, one, I was doing something on the Abrahamic covenant. The other, I was doing something on the book of Abraham. So I was going to do Abraham chapter three. And on the same day, I'm going through my PowerPoint that says this is all about our relationship with God. And for the Abrahamic Covenant lecture I'm doing, this is all about our relationship with God. And I thought, why have I never seen that <laughs> chapter three comes right after chapter two, that, that really it's another way for God to say that what is more important than anything is our relationship with him. He teaches us that through covenant makes the, the, the relationship possible. Then he teaches more about it with this astronomy thing. And, and basically it, that would make it in the end a commentary on how to fulfill what the covenant is about, which is to draw closer to God and have a higher relationship with God. So, you know, when I look at when I look at history, the history of the world, uh, and step back and think, what would somebody looking at the what's important in the world? What would they say? You know, power, authority, hmm. uh, hopeful that your nation wins wars. I think of of the what I was always taught about the expectations that the Jews had for a savior to being somebody who was going to come and fight a war for them. And, and to the point you just made, he comes and fights a war, but it's not, it's not a battle. It's a, it's the war about us becoming more like our heavenly father, us becoming closer to him. Yeah. And and in some ways, Carrie, it's, it's almost been ironic to me. It seems like the nuggets of life and living are embedded, uh, on the back pages of the newspapers, it's not ever the front lines headline stuff. Yeah, that stuff actually is doesn't matter. What matters is what you just said, and and even with the Abrahamic covenant, it it hit me just as you were talking here, because I didn't really thought that way before myself. That the Abrahamic covenant to me is about a huge nation, 
and gathering a whole lot of people into a nation and things like that. But what your point is that you just made, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I am, but is that that's not the point. The point is more individual person to person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say in a way it's both, right? God, God in the scriptures is very clear. He wants to save all of Israel, but what is saving all of Israel? It's saving each individual, which is the same thing President Nelson has been telling us, right? Do you want to gather Israel? Then do something for someone on either side of the veil to get them connected to God, right? And so it's by connecting a thousand individuals or really millions of individuals that we connect the, the people or the covenant people or the people of Israel. So God will typically speak in terms of the larger group, but it happens with that individual uh, relationship. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. And and I find it really interesting what you were saying. Um, so uh, maybe I can just share uh, quickly a little story of a sure. time when the, the scriptures became real to me and, and you kind of just made me think yeah. of it. Um, uh, there was a time my family and I, we wanted to kind of uh, map out the road to Emmaus when we were living in Jerusalem. And so we found what was probably the Emmaus and what was probably the, the road there. And we, uh, we walked it as much as we could together. There are some freeways you have to go around and stuff. But anyway, we walked it as much as we could together. And as I was walking that and I was thinking about the uh, disciples who are with Christ and they say to him, what? He says, tell me what you're talking about. And they say, what, haven't you heard? We thought this guy was going to be our Messiah, but he died. Right. And, and so what they're really saying is we thought this guy would come and conquer Rome for us. We thought he'd come and, and win this battle for us, but he didn't. And I can almost uh, picture the Savior saying, oh, you have no idea what battle I just fought. I fought a battle. <laughs> and it was, Rome is small potatoes compared to the battle I just fought. I just fought death and hell, and I won. Why are you worried about Rome? That's teeny yeah. compared to what I was just doing. And and uh, my feeling is that, that just what, what you were talking about, that, you know, we've got, all these big events that seem to concern us, but in the end, uh, it's something different that we should really be concerned with. Uh, it's something much bigger, and yet it seems smaller from the world's point of view. Anyway. Uh, Beautifully put. Thank you. Uh, maybe just uh, before we go, I'd uh, just ask you one other question. As, uh, um, as an astronomer... Uh, do you have any thoughts uh, about uh, creation or uh, God, the creator, that have maybe been particularly meaningful to you? I know that's a surprise question for you. Sorry, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if uh, if you have any thoughts along those lines. Oh, I've had many. I've had I've had a lot. I'll throw I'll throw a few out there, and uh, who, who knows how these things are evolving? When you think of creation. I spent the morning in the temple. That's why I have a tie on. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, you're taught about creation there. Right. And uh, the the steps of creation, when you look at the creation story, it really parallels how we feel the solar system developed. Uh, it is a very nice um, high-level description of what science will tell you the, the sequence of events were. And... Uh, it, it, that's pretty remarkable, pretty pretty cool. But when you talk about God's realm and God's, you know, uh, what what is His realm? And uh, over 
over what does he preside and what's the extent of it and uh, uh, how does he create and, and what's that whole process and, and so on. I do think that uh, the earth is very tiny. Abraham or Moses, I think the book of Moses makes that pretty clear yeah. that uh, his realm is, is very, very vast. And, and so as you know, I talk with other astronomers and so on, all these astronomers and, you know, what is it? Is, is, does it get a galaxy? Does it get the whole universe? Is it whatever? I believe it seems to me, at least the default position I would take is that the entire universe is his. Yeah. Uh, there's plenty of room out there for, for many universes. I found, it sounds stupid saying that, but there is, yeah. uh, we can conceive how, there could be an infinite number of universes so that any anybody who was a god would have their own universe. That doesn't seem to be much of an issue. Uh, and, and I've wondered about that because we, we can look out in space and it seems to us that we see uh, a singular event in which everything was created, the Big Bang, we call it. Uh, an ugly name for a concept that is a lot more rich in ideas than just simply a grenade exploding. That's mm. not really what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about infusion of organized energy into a space that is then organized through uh, what we describe as forces of nature, but it gets organized into things like worlds right. uh, and beautiful organizations like, like galaxies and things like that. And I kind of think back in Abraham three that, uh, the, the Lord was just simply trying to tell Abraham, there's a terrific amount of depth and there's places where I dwell and there's bodies by where I dwell. And look, here's one of them, Kolob, and that one's kind of related to you. Uh, but just please understand the whole concept and the idea that my con my creations are vast. There, there's a whole lot of them out there. Uh, and uh, I... I, I I don't know. I, I I will probably spend my whole life trying to find the punchline hmm. to the discussion we're talking about right right now. Just where does it all end? And I I suspect that comes uh, a millennium or two later when when we're all ready to understand the significance of it and learn more about that aspect of God. But for now, I, to me, it's I'm satisfied to absolutely. Uh, Know, know to the extent that I can know that there is there's purpose behind it. I just do not, I don't see any evidence out there for purposelessness. Mm. Right. Uh, I, that there's purpose, there's intelligence uh, uh, behind it. A lot of it's hidden from our view. I, uh, a, a while back, realized that if God wanted to create a world in which we can actually have faith, he had to hide from us his handiwork enough so that faith could develop. Mm. That, that and so sense. I don't think that, yeah, I don't think then science will ever prove God or disprove God. Right. I, don't, I think it's set up so that that will never be anything we can do. We have to have uh, faith. Faith is one reason, you know, why, why we're here so that we can learn to possess it. And so everything I say still has has faith behind it. Right. Still, I just see that this great hand of majestic hand behind it, and this this purpose behind it, which we're told, has to do with 
the immortality and eternal life of man. And so, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's good enough for me, I guess at this point. Yeah. I, that's really the kicker, isn't it? Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I'm with you. So, you know, I, I, well, just a couple of thoughts on that. Elder Maxwell said something very similar about the scriptures that we need to take them on faith. So yeah. he thinks it will always remain that there's enough evidence that we can believe, but never so much evidence that we have to believe. Uh, I'm paraphrasing him, but, and I, I think you're saying yeah, the same thing about it. creation in, in general. Um, yeah, and, I, I think, I think I'll, I'll toss this out there and, and I could be way off on this, but who would know, who would even know? It just seems like the creation as it's talked about in scripture is a tiny thing for, for us, for yeah. God. That if there was a beginning in the time frame of things, if we can become as God was, then there'll be a time when that happens. And in my heart of hearts, I look at the Big Bang and say, well, maybe that's when our Heavenly Father became God and everything was given to him at that point. That is the ultimate speculation that I <laughs> probably should never speculate on. <laughs> well. But, but in my heart, I kind of think that. Yeah. Well, if we don't ask questions, even when, when it's impossible to find answers, if we don't ask questions, then we, we stop progressing. But, but I'm with you. I look at the beauty of the creation on whatever scale, uh, on a hike up to a waterfall or on a, a, a picture of galaxy, the galaxies spinning around. And um, mm. for me, the reaction is it's hard not to see the hand of the creator. Um, but I'm also with you in that. I, in fact, I remember reading uh, something about John A. Witzo who would say uh, when things were seemed kind of big and overwhelming, he'd go out and look at the night stars and say, ah, yeah, God has worlds without number he's created. These problems here aren't so big. He, he can take care of these pretty, pretty easily. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, yeah we, we're... we're teeny in the midst of uh, vast majesty and yet the point of it all is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life and that's both humbling and ennobling at the same time yes well thank humbling you humbling and ennobling you bet uh, well th thank you so much for your time it's just good good fun to visit with you uh, i sure appreciate it I'm, I'm sure I don't know enough. Thank you, Carrie. Of... I appreciate it very much. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure I don't. I, I don't know enough about uh, mechanics of podcasting to know what I'm supposed to say. It's supposed to say stuff about liking and subscribing and sharing. So I don't know any of that. But I, I believe we've been um, fed well enough that those who do understand about sharing or whatever they should do will want to share uh, this good interview with you. So thank you for that. Thank you. You bet, Carrie. All right. Appreciate it. Good luck to you in this endeavor. It's a good thing you're doing. Thank you. Well, have a wonderful day, you, uh, Jay, and um, and uh, all of our listeners. We hope you have a wonderful day and that uh, you go and find more power in the scripture so that God uh, is more present in your life. So thank you and take care. All right. Take care.